0: I mean, 38 hours out there, man. It's a, it's a long time. I count that down every year. I start at two o'clock in the morning on the 29th and uh, to the following evening, and yeah, that's a long time.
1: For nearly a half century, Dennis Hale counted down the hours he survived on the Daniel J. Morrell's life raft. And while the tragedy will always be remembered for his incredible survival and the 28 lives lost, the gale actually stretched to two different lakes and affected thousands of lives. I'm Rick Mixter, with an in-depth look at the morale and its sole survivor, told by Dennis himself in my interview and from his first public appearance in April of
2: 1982. Thank you. Wow, I don't know if I can do this or
3: not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> ah, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very proud to be here tonight. I have, I'm so honored, I'm at a loss for words, really. Uh, Finally, after 16 years, I feel privileged to be able to speak to you about the sinking of the Daniel Gale
1: We will also chronicle the sinking of two ships you may not have heard about, the Ferry City of Midland at Ludington and the German motor ship Nordmere, whose crew were airlifted by Coast Guard helicopter during the gale.
4: We were right down, right along the shoreline. We were down 200 feet and, you know, could hardly see in front of us and snow packing up, but. Uh, And Jack said, we need to land and see if we're taking on ice.
1: Nordmere's legacy includes one of the first environmental cleanups by a former Navy SEAL that you won't soon forget.
5: It was cold. I used two wetsuits, one that fit me and one that was larger. And I wore them both and I stayed, I didn't stay warm, I stayed cold, but however, I lived through it.
1: All this and more eyewitness interviews from November of 1966, and with a reminder that all interviews are copyright airworthy productions and may not be recorded or rebroadcast without permission. Thanks for joining me on ShipwreckPodcast.com.
3: It was a stormy night, November 66. 35-foot waves crashing down on the deck. Torn like paper was the Daniel J. Morell, 29-man crew facing Huron's hell.
1: Dennis Hale was born January 23, 1940, to a car mechanic and his wife, Ruby, who had intense bleeding after Dennis was born at 2 a.m.
0: I was born at home, and she hemorrhaged to death before they'd get her to the hospital. And... Uh, Uh, My other siblings were at the house when it happened. You know, I had a sister and two brothers. And uh, she was gone just like that.
1: Dennis Hale was a survivor literally from the day he was born. And the hardship of raising kids without a mother took its toll on the family.
0: Well, I was shifted around from family to family. And um, I guess over the, you know, through the years of my youth, I kind of got an attitude. You know, especially with my cousin beating on me physically, mentally, and and sexually, you know. um, I got an attitude towards life. And uh, very incorrigible. uh, Kicked out of California when I was 13. Grand theft auto. Incorrigibility. um, And, you know, time just uh, showed me a better way, I guess you'd say. But I was a pretty shitty kid, without a doubt. And don't say shitty.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Dennis found a better life after finding a church.
0: After I became Catholic. You know, I became Catholic because I wanted to. And uh, went through the instructions and everything. And uh, I'm not a violent person. I'm very low keyed, you know. Um, And you know, I've always had a philosophy about about getting angry and stuff. I think it's very bad for your your system and for your health and it's just something I don't do.
1: Dennis also fell in love and instantly had the family he so desperately sought out.
0: I got married and the woman I married had two children and um, put a lot of responsibility on me. Not that I was uh, always responsible, but I think that had a big deal, a big part of it too.
1: His attempt at responsibility included finding a full-time job. He had watched the silver screen on how ship crews were like family. He had also heard the food aboard was amazing.
0: My appetite for one thing, you know, lack of work, that, that was a bad time. And uh, living in Ashtavula and, you know, hanging around the harbor and everything, I I kind of got um, interested in the boats, you know, wondering what to, what it would be like, you know. and. Uh, once I sailed and, you know, I found out how much camaraderie there was, it was something I hadn't had with no family, you know. And uh, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it.
1: It was the spring of 1964 and Dennis had great timing. The steel industry was finally picking up and Bethlehem Steel decided to take out two freighters they hadn't used in a while, the Daniel J. Morrell and the Edward Townsend. The near sister ships had been launched in 1906, Morrell at Bay City, and the Townsend at Superior, Wisconsin. 58 years old, the ships passed Coast Guard inspection but required some cleanup.
0: We climbed aboard the ship and it was just covered with spiders and spider webs all over the place and I hate those, I hate them. And uh, so we started hosing, hosing the ship down and getting it ready to sail. And uh, it was a lot harder work than I thought it was as a deckhand, you know. We had the tarps to haul out of the dunnage room and bring up on deck in the fall and. Those tarps, man, they must weigh 800 pounds apiece, you know. And it'd take all of us to take them up those ladders and get them up on deck. And then you always had to go back down and get another one. Oh, well, we only had 18 hatches, but I mean, whew, boy, that was work. And then in the spring, you had to put them away, take them back down in the dunnage
1: room. Dennis sailed three seasons on the Morrell, mostly taking ore from Taconite Harbor, Minnesota, to Buffalo, New York. And he said that one of his duties was to go below and mark any leaks found while they were underway.
0: Uh, there was a problem with leaking rivets. A friend of mine, uh, Harvey Hayes, he's uh, he lives in Erie. Uh, he was sent down into the uh, watertight compartments and uh, to check the hulls with another fella, And before winter layup that year, and he said, well, they took whole sections and they'd mark them with paint for replacing the rivets. And uh, of course you might think that uh, with the rivets leaking like that that you know, why didn't it sink through the winter water was frozen and freeze around those those rivets, you know, you, it, was, it was safe, and um, that spring, you know, we got aboard and the work hadn't been done and uh, I figured well, you know, I don't know enough about this to criticize anybody but it didn't really bother me. You know, with the way the, the ship works and bends and everything, you've got to have some wear there. I mean, you just have to.
1: The Sulawks announced 1966 was their first million-ton year in a decade, and in late November, the crew of the Morrell got some good news. They'd be home for Christmas. Those family reunions would be postponed when the company lost one of their ships to engine problems. Morrell and the Townsend would need to pick up a final load at the end of the month, so Dennis timed out a quick trip home to Ashtabula to bring some of his gear home for the winter. Dennis didn't need to help with the unloading, and there were ships ahead of them at Lackawanna. Once at the dock, it would take eight hours for the Hewlett's to pull the oar out, and surely he'd have enough time to see his family and make it back before they cast off their lines. Dennis and crewman John Grow made it back to New York just in time to see the Morrell clearing the breakwall. wall. Both men were eager to collect over $6,000 in pay for the extra trip, so they headed to Buffalo's Coast Guard Station to call Captain Art Crawley, the new skipper of the Morrell. So we went
2: to the Coast Guard Station, I called the captain on the ship's shore phone. They told us to meet the ship at Mullins Colba, across from Detroit. When we got to Mullins Colbach the next evening, uh, the weather was really bad. Our ship was laying at anchor, somewhere off outside the river. We, we arrived there about four o'clock in the evening. We stayed there until about 8.30 the next morning before the ship tied up.
1: It's not hard to notice that Dennis's last voyage would originate directly across the river from where the Edmund Fitzgerald would be bound for its last voyage, Zug Island. John Gallagher Mullen had been fueling ships at this Windsor dock since 1877, now called Consolidated Coal Company, where the Morrell took on 221 tons of Stoker fuel. It turns out that Dennis and John's four-hour trip from New York state could have been a bit less hurried though, as bad weather caused Captain Crowley to drop anchor in the river below Detroit overnight. This is where the steamer Edward Townsend passed the morale, as Captain Thomas Connolly opted to anchor in the St. Clair River below Stag Island, about 50 miles further north. Dennis was exhausted, catching up on sleep just before his shift. During that time, Captain Crowley opted to ignore gale warnings that were posted at noon, he weighed anchor and crept up past Port Huron for a look, passing the anchored Townsend just after lunch. The winds at Stag Island were variable up to 18 miles per hour.
2: I stood the eight the watch. So by the time I got there, my watch was over. I went right to bed. My friend John, he had to, he had to work. I slept till time to go back to work at four o'clock. At this time, we were just uh, up by uh, Just getting out on the lake, right near that lightship. I had learned that because of weather, we had gone to anchor
1: again. What Dennis and the crew didn't know was that Lake Huron had already claimed a ship, but not in a storm. The German motor vessel Nordmere had misread a buoy and drifted onto Thunder Bay Shoal, and the majority of the crew had left the ship in a lifeboat. Loaded with over $1.5 million worth of German steel, the captain and seven other crewmen stayed aboard to keep Salvers from claiming the metal. Storm warnings made the crew nervous, especially when radio reports indicated a car ferry was stranded near Ludington, Michigan. Captain Henry Gates had lost control of the 400-foot city of Midland as it passed into the harbor, stranding at 8.05 p.m., November 27. High winds prevented evacuation, so Captain Gates flooded the ballast tanks to hold the ship firm, and the 128 passengers were treated to a three-day adventure. The Coast Guard brought out milk, bread, meat, and eggs to the stranded ship, and the cook prepared roast beef that next night. Protected from the waves by a break wall, they had no idea of the peril on Lake Huron on the evening of the 28th. Meteorologists would later say that two cyclones had developed, one from a low that originated in southern Colorado, moving and growing to a 1,000 miles wide with a center on the Wisconsin border November 27th. By the morning of the 28th, it had crossed Michigan to the city of Alpena, slowing as it transited Lake Huron into Canada. The Coast Guard cutter Acacia unknowingly followed the path of this freshwater cyclone on a mission to deliver two 40-foot utility boats to the Sioux. Captain Charles Millrat watched as those workboats were torn from their mounts in the storm, 20-foot waves that prevented Acacia from returning to Harbor Beach. Alpena set a new record for snowfall, with 15 inches falling in 24 hours. Acacia was within 20 miles of where the Daniel J. Morrell was last seen on Lake Huron, with its last radio report to the home office when they heaved anchor and headed out into Lake Huron.
2: The weather wasn't too bad at this time. It was snowing a little. Uh, The weather was choppy, the lake was choppy. There were winds. After the watch, I went back to the gallery, I got a bite to eat. I brought some food forward for the wheelsman and the first mate. I went to bed, read for probably an hour, turned out my bunk light and went to sleep. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I was awakened by a loud bang. Two loud bangs. The second one knocked the books off my bookshelf.
1: Dennis grabbed his life jacket and ran out of his room on the starboard side of the bow cabins. He saw Norm Bragg and other crewmen getting the life raft ready to launch. Norm had survived the Henry Steinbrenner sinking on Lake Superior just 13 years prior. Dennis ran back into his room to find warmer clothes, only to find pitch darkness. The Morels' power came from generators in the stern, and the wires were now sparking as they tore away from the bow section. I
2: couldn't find any of my clothes, I don't know why, except for my people. So I put that over my life jacket, and I went back out on deck. As I walked out on deck, I could feel these slush oozing up between my toes. The wind was terrible. And the noise was, it was unreal. The sound was... I, I can't explain the sounds. The engine was crying. The steam escaping. The wind. Just before uh, the ship tore in half, I looked towards the after end, and I could see someone, probably Don Worchester, the oiler, standing in front of the after cabins with an oiler in his hands. I don't know if they knew anything about the alarm going sounded.
1: Dennis blacked out as the bow section plunged. His last recollection was the stern slamming into the bow as it was still under power.
2: I closed my eyes and I held onto the raft. Next thing I knew I was in the water. I must have been knocked out as I I went over the bridge because I don't know what happened and I, all I know was I was in the water and I opened my eyes and all these bubbles were around me. And I started swimming towards the top. When I got to the top, I could see the raft. There was no one on it. I swam over to the raft. There were two men there. I climbed aboard, and they helped me aboard. Shortly after, another good friend <laughs> climbed aboard. And we helped him aboard. The immediate thing on my mind was to get the to the safety supplies.
1: The conversation soon revealed that no one from the crew had a chance to put out a mayday. No one knew the morale had sunk. It was November 29th with three story tall waves crashing around them and the four men were at the mercy of the storm.
2: The flares, I immediately fired one. Uh, I also lit a handheld flare. The kind, of, kind of huddled around with time get warm. In five minutes, your fingers were numb on you. In 20 minutes, I had no feeling in my feet.
0: I can still remember being on the raft and digging this stuff out of the safety compartment. And uh, I was on my knees and I reached up to close that, that hatch and I kind of saw this glitter out of the corner of my eye and I looked and, and you know, the, the carbide light was still lit, lit on the back of the raft and all I could see was this, this wall of water and I could see the foam on the top being blown off, and I said, oh my God, that's going to crash on us and kill us. So, you know, real quick I closed the hatch and, and leaned forward, extended myself, rolled over to one side anticipating this wave. But we went through them and that was, there's no good way to describe that. It's just, uh, you know, you didn't have time between waves to catch your breath because you didn't know when they were coming. And I mean, not catch your breath, but to get in breath of air, you know, and you'd stay underwater so long that your lungs would start to burn. And uh, then when we break through the backside of the wave, Um, you'd hear all four of us just just yelling in pain and that wind would hit you.
1: With no SOS, no ship thought to respond to the area. Captain Connolly on the Townsend called for the Morrell at 1.45 and again at 3.45 a.m. with no response. Believing the Morrell must have lost an antenna in the high winds, he never reported the lost communication to Bethlehem's home office, nor did the office seem to worry about their ship for an entire day without reports. The Coast Guard did receive an early morning SOS from a hand-powered radio aboard Nordmere. Acacia and the Cutter Mackinac were sent to help the eight stranded men. Traverse City's air station was the closest helicopter base, which could reach the Nordmere in just a half hour. The winds and snow prevented takeoff, and it looked like the same issue faced pilots 170 miles to the south at a brand-new air station at Selfridge Air Force Base.
4: As operations officer I'd go in in the morning and look at the messages that that the district had sent out. And this day I noticed that they had sent a message to Traverse City to go out and rescue these. There were eight sailors aboard this uh, German motor vessel uh, that had gone aground. Um, So I didn't think much about it. Um, About lunchtime, I went back and checked in messages and I saw where Traverse City said the weather's too bad we can't go out. Uh, And the Coast Guard cutter Mackinac had been dispatched to go to the scene to see if they could assist. And the Mackinac had sent a message, said no, the weather's too bad, the seas are 15, 20 feet high, we can't lower a boat, to go over there. And the eight crewmen that are aboard, they've lost power, they're they're freezing and so forth, and Traverse City can't, the weather's too bad, they can't go. So I thought for a few minutes, at, at Detroit at the time, I guess we we may had four or five hundred foot ceiling and maybe half a mile, a quarter mile visibility. It was snowing.
1: Lieutenant Lonnie Mixon was a pilot from Alabama who had transitioned three years earlier from fixed wing aircraft to helicopters.
4: We had just gotten the the H-52, which is an amphibian. It's the first amphibian helicopter, jet engine. Uh, Oh, Avionics package was top flight. I mean, it was like it was the Cadillac of, of helicopters.
1: Checking the weather once again, Lieutenant Mixon asked his commander if he could try to rescue the Nordmere's crew.
4: Went to the skipper and I said, uh, Captain Swanson, maybe, uh, maybe we ought to try to make an effort. you think? He said, well, contact the district and see what they want, see if they want you to. So I called on the phone down there and, and they sent us a teletype message back, says, you know, launch if weather permits and see what you can do. So uh, we decided go, this was probably around 2.30 in the afternoon, I uh, had Jack Rittercher as my co-pilot and David Knopfs, who was a second-class metalsmith, who was from Detroit, by the way, and we took off and headed up for the uh, Lake Huron, headed up the Saginaw Peninsula, going up the Thumb. Uh, and of course the weather was just a T- terrific winds. The farther north we got, the worse it got. So we had 40, 50 knots of wind and, and snowing. and. Uh, and the ceilings were, and visibility was getting down. We were right down, right along the shoreline. We were down 200 feet and, you know, could hardly see in front of us.
1: Falling temperatures brought icing conditions, which are deadly as they accumulate on aircraft.
4: Jack said, Man, we need to land and see if we're taking on ice. I said, well, Jack, no, I think what it is, we, we aren't using any more power and we're maintaining altitudes. So I said, let's just keep going and keep a close watch. And if it looks to you, like from your viewpoint, from it takes us more power, let me know and we'll do something. So we weren't sure exactly where uh, the the Nordmi was located, but we followed the coastline up to Port Austin.
1: Decades before accurate satellite navigation, the crew only had a compass heading to go on and they were running low on fuel.
4: There had been a fixed wing out earlier and they said, I think the bearing is at like maybe 040 in so many miles. So I said, Jack, we'll go out 040 for 25 minutes and if we don't see them then we'll start a, a, a search working our way back in so we took off and again the weather was you know as as it is and and up there uh the end of 25 minutes jack says okay it's time to turn i said okay it says time is two more minutes jack let's just go two more minutes and then we'll go back lo and behold just at the end of two minutes we look down under us there it is just as if by magic, you know? And uh, of course the waves were breaking up over the, the Nordmere and about a hundred yards away was the Mackinac, which again, the seas were so heavy, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't get a small boat over. So immediately our decision then was, we, we couldn't pick all eight of them up and we were getting to the point where fuel, we had darkness to consider which was coming on.
1: Mixon and his co-pilot quickly ran scenarios on what to do.
4: Jack said, well, why don't we take four take them in to get fuel, and come back. And I thought from that, I said, no. I said, by then it'll be dark. We may not even find them when we come back. So I I called the uh, Mackinac and said, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pick up four guys first. I'm gonna come over and see if we can get them down on your deck.
1: The next problem was relaying the plan to the stranded sailors below them, who spoke broken English and didn't have communication with the helicopter.
4: First of all, I had to drop a radio down, lower a radio down because they had no communications with the the Germans. Told them what we were going to do. Picked up four, took them over to the Mackinac, lowered them down. Of course, that was the tough part because the Mackinac deck was, you know, up and down. I do say that the guy on the deck did one hell of a job down there, getting that, handling that basket down there and getting them off. Um, And then we went back and got the other four and got them over there.
1: The Sea Guard helicopter was now dangerously low on fuel, but there was an Air Force base just 40 miles away.
4: And now it was just getting dark and going into Wurtsmith for fuel. And we got into Wurtsmith, refueled, just as we got airborne, we heard on the radio the Mackinac was making a report uh, to Cleveland, the headquarters says, okay, they got the eight men off, I have them on board. And about five minutes after the helicopter left, the ship broke a ships. You know, wasn't that something? It just uh, fate is really a thing, that's right.
1: The lieutenant was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his flight, but he's quick to say his aviation machinist did most of the hard work.
4: The big job is the guy in the back, then lowering the basket down to the deck, coordinating with the guy on the ground on on the deck of the Mackinac to, to, and then give him enough slack so they can get them out and then hoist the basket back up. It wasn't difficult getting them off the Nordmere because it was stuck aground. It wasn't moving, you know, it's easy to hover over something that's not moving. So that wasn't the difficult part.
1: The helicopter crew had nearly flown over the only survivors of the Daniel J. Morrell, but without an SOS or missing vessel report, they didn't know to look for them.
4: That's right, what well, we said last night, had we, you know, we, we might have flown over people because we were flying again down the coastline going back home, and and the ship wasn't that far off the shoreline when it, when it, when it broke, when it broke in half.
1: On the raft, John Cleary and Art Stojak had finally succumbed to the freezing temperatures. Dennis Hale and Charles Fossbender had just spotted Michigan shoreline as they approached Huron City.
2: At four o'clock, he raised himself up, put one hand on my hip, and he got a hand on the deck and raised himself up and told me we could see our hand. And I said, fantastic, maybe somebody will find us. He says, I can't. I can't hold on much longer. My lungs are starting to crack. I says, well, cough that stuff out, guys. I said, cough it out. He started coughing and died.
1: Morel was finally reported overdue just after noon on November 30th. It was just about this time that the Harbor Beach Coast Guard pulled a sailor's body from Lake Huron wearing a morell life jacket. Dennis Hale had now spent two full nights and a day in 30 degree weather, wearing nothing but a life jacket, his underwear, and a pea coat. And i pray, oh God, i pray.
2: i pray for hours and then i look to the sky and say, Damn it, forget it, just leave me alone, let me die. And then I lay down and pay some more. By that evening, I noticed lights around me. There were buoys around me. There was a farmhouse. I could see the lights from the farmhouse. So I fired another flare. By this time, my flares were becoming very scarce.
1: With no visible rescue ship, Dennis would fire flares from the storage compartment indiscriminately. Five would launch, but the gun broke in half and served a more vital purpose.
0: The flare gun had broken on me, and I could still use it just by holding the two pieces, loading it and holding the two pieces together and pulling the trigger. But uh, it had a long lanyard, long rope on it, and I used to take that rope and I'd, I'd stick it through the slats in the raft into the water, and then I'd suck the water off it for moisture. And I only had a little little area between uh, John Cleary and I. And, uh, Somehow in that small area, I, I lost this flare gun. And uh, it was snowing really bad. And um, I looked and looked for this, this lanyard and just couldn't find it. And I noticed there was ice, an ice buildup on my collar. So um, I pulled my collar around and, you know, I got up on one elbow and pulled my collar around and I started eating
1: the ice. The moisture from the icicle barely hit his lips when a man appeared in front of him.
0: Have you ever been someplace and you feel like somebody's staring at you? And you're looking, oh, that's, that's how I felt, like somebody was staring at me. And I looked and there was this, this strange looking guy there. And uh, very strange. Uh, he, his face had a very calming effect on me, I think. And uh, his hair was uh, very white and uh, wavy, almost to the point of being curly and uh, uh, his eyebrows were white and very bushy, uh, which was in contrast to his mustache. He had a white mustache, very neatly trimmed. Um, his skin was, uh, you know, skim milk, uh, when I was growing up, had, kind of had a blue tinge to it, you know, and his skin was like that. And his eyes were very, very deep-set, very... I, I somehow feel that he communicated with, to me with his eyes. And um, very thunderously, though, and uh, he told me not to eat the ice off my peacoat, you know, I, I was going he said, don't eat the ice off your peacoat. And so I laid back down, and I went to sleep, and I had the afterlife experience, and suddenly found myself back on the raft. And uh, I looked around for this guy, and I called him Doc, I guess because um, when I saw him the first time, he administered to me, and I just, you know, called him Doc. And I yelled for him, and uh, didn't come. I looked for the lanyard. I was dry again, thirsty as I could be. And I looked for the lanyard and the flare gun, I, I couldn't find it. And I knew I didn't throw it overboard. And uh, yelled for him and yelled for him and waited and waited, and uh, he never reappeared. And uh, so I figured, well, i got to have something to drink. I going to start eating that ice again. And when I did that again, he reappeared. And, and this time he shook a finger at me. And while he was doing that, I said to myself, you got to remember all this because nobody's going to believe it anyhow if you make it. And he said, I told you not to eat the ice off your peacoat. You're going to lower your body temperature and you're going to die.
1: Dennis thought he had seen several rescue choppers, and he screamed at every one of them. For two days, they turned out to be seagulls that simply flew away.
0: You go through what's called a loss of face syndrome, where you don't care whether you live or die. And. Uh, I don't know what, what kept me alive because I, I didn't really want to be alive. I wanted my pain over, you know, the physical and mental pain. And uh, so when I wake up, I'd really be upset, really be angry But uh, you know, I hadn't died.
1: Dennis had vivid dreams as he lapsed in and out of consciousness. At one time, he dreamt he was in Escanaba with his crew. Another time, a man showed him pictures from his life, sharing stories from his past without ever saying a word.
0: One thing I'll never forget is when I got to the top of this, uh, this cloud and I was on this uh, green field, uh, there was a man ahead of me uh, that, that called me, beckoned to me. And I went over and he took my hands. And, and it seemed like it only took a second or two for my whole life to go between, you know, before me. And there were different areas where he stopped and he talked to me. And um, uh, he told tell me things about my life. And uh, I don't know what he said. And when I start going to shrink this, this month, we're going to try and pursue that a little bit. And um, then he told me I could cross over. But, um, and I was greeted by family members. But uh, the one thing he said to me uh, that I'll never forget is let us see what you've learned. I guess from that, I, I kind of feel that life is really a growing experience, you know.
1: Dennis prayed to go to sleep and never wake up. And when he finally did come to, his original prayer had been answered. Traverse City Helicopter 1395 was hovering above him.
0: My survival, you know, I I, I question it sometimes. I think that maybe um, the manner in which I was dressed. You know, watching the other guys, um, their clothing froze first and kind of encapsulated them in in, in ice, you know. And I'm sure that plummeted their body temperatures. And uh, with me not having any clothes on, and then uh, I think that was beneficial. And uh, then uh, when I put that life jacket on, uh, that was right next to my skin, and it was the, the plastic with the uh, kapok inside of it. And I think that that plastic and the kapok kind of insulated my heart and lungs, along with that peacoat.
1: The chopper airlifted Dennis to Harbor Beach General Hospital, where he told a police officer to call his wife. Doctors worked to revive him, but a priest was also called in to administer last rites. Dennis said his checkered past led to several sessions of confession.
0: Well, that night after they brought me in, uh, uh, being Catholic, the priest came in and gave me last rites of the church and everything, you know, which which kind of shook me up. And I was so happy about what I had seen and what had happened to me, I, I had to share it with him. I mean, the excitement in me was just and after I told him, he said to me, he says, Oh, Dennis, he says, I don't think I talk about that. And I, I really felt crushed. And uh, so I didn't. And, you know, over the years, um, that was probably some of the best advice he could have given me.
1: Father McNamara would later tell Len Dufresne that someone from the media tried to take advantage of his access to the sole survivor. You know what one outfit
6: tried to do? They tried to plant, the the priest from here went over to see him. And they tried to plant a tape recorder on him. You never heard about that? and uh, But they didn't get away with it. They uh, Somehow or other, he must have reached in his pocket and found it or something. See, they wouldn't let anybody in to see him. The priest didn't know about it? Well, he must have found out. Uh, that He must have reached in his pocket or something and found it. But they didn't want to, they wouldn't let anybody in to see him for, I don't know how many hours that he was in there.
1: How'd you hear that story? Was that in the paper, or did you talk to the priest? Or? Oh yeah,
6: I knew the priest, yeah, Father McNamara. He's deceased now, but he was a...
1: Uh, he uh, he went over to see uh, Dennis L. Dennis admits it was the headlines that he read about the disaster that cemented his decision not to talk about the sinking.
0: Well, I was in Harbor Beach Community Hospital, and uh, probably one of the first articles I read, I think it was from the Detroit Free Press, or uh, News, or whatever it was, and it said, to macabre Taylor survival on the Great Lakes. Man survives huddled beneath the bodies of his frozen shipmates. And I just really, I really felt slammed about that, you know. I, it wasn't true. And uh, I kind of went into seclusion after that. Uh, um, never talked about it. I It was 23 years before I could even talk about it. And I just got to the point where, uh, you know, by not saying anything, I was more or less admitting it was true. and. Uh, so you know i start talking about it
3: In appreciation
2: of his being invited here this evening he has volunteered to for the first time since his near fatal 1966 shipwreck experience relate his personal version of the horrible events through the sinking of the daniel j morrell and his ultimate rescue
1: On April 3rd, 1982, Dennis spoke publicly about his survival to a fledgling Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. Invited by the group to simply be at a showing of Larry Copeland's film of the shipwreck, Dennis agreed to tell the group about his survival.
2: When the helicopter landed and came over to me, I told them I had a couple busted ribs on the left side of my chest. I had been let down in this hole and my armpit was laying over a bar that connects both sides of the raft, and it was very sore. The same thing was true just above the knee. I still carry an indentation and a scar from it.
0: I think it's kind of a tribute to the men that sailed with me, which is what you know I really wanted, and uh, it's therapy for me. Um, and when I talk about it, I talk from my heart, and uh, I think people can see that. And, uh, because when I talk, I, I don't care if it's to 35 people or uh, 1,500. Uh, you can hear a pinfall. It's so quiet. It's so quiet. And so you can feel the tension in the air when I talk. And I uh, occasionally have to crack a joke or try and lighten them up somehow, you know? Because I do have questions and answers afterwards. And if they're all uptight, they don't answer. They just want to hear. And uh, so I do try and crack a joke, yeah and that kind of loosens him up a little bit, and lets him feel like I am human.
1: Dennis was all too human, and the brutal cold took its toll with frostbite on his hand and toes.
0: I've had 10 surgeries on my left foot, and you know, it gives, it's not giving me too many problems now, uh, but uh, everyday something. You know, For a long time, you know, I could be walking down the street and I'd see a profile or back of somebody's head, and it would, would remind me of somebody on the morale. and I'd, I'd make a conscious effort to see their face. Uh, I thought that was kind of strange.
1: On January 6, a Navy sub-hunting airplane from Naval Station Grosseel found a target off Michigan's thumb. Divers confirmed it was the stern section of the Morrell. No crewmen were located in their survey, but a large piece of the wreck was brought to the surface. Experts believe the vessel was built of a brittle steel in 1906 that broke in the cold November gale. The bow section was located five miles away by divers Larry Copeland and David Trotter in May of 1979.
0: I was even offered a trip to, in a sub to go down and see it, and I just I saw all of that I wanted, you know. And I've been enticed into diving, which I refused to do. Uh, the last time I dove uh, was when the morale went down, and I didn't like going down then, you know? So, I mean, uh, I, you know, I just, uh, I talk about it. Uh, there isn't a day that goes by I don't think about it.
1: Dennis's visions on the raft stayed with him for his entire life, a guiding force that initially kept him from freezing to death, but also told him how to live his life.
0: I believe in angels, guardian angels, spirits. I believe in that stuff. Uh, with what I went through, I guess I'd be foolish not to. And um, oh yeah, somebody's with me all the time. I hope they're showing me the right way to do things.
1: As with any major news event, there are many side notes. Harbor Beach still talks about the rescue and about how their doctor saved the sole survivor. Historian Pick Dufresne filmed the helicopters as they brought in debris and bodies, and he said the commotion affected the whole town. We had people from Cleveland here and all over, a lot of,
6: uh, some of the people weren't too happy because they were tying up all the telephones, and back then there weren't that many public telephones, you know, (laughs) and that,
1: but, the, it was, uh, town time was a buzz, yeah. Lieutenant Lonnie Mixon flew several missions looking for Morell's crew. Lieutenant Jack Ridditcher, who won an air medal for the Nordmere rescue, was profiled in a local newspaper after finding debris, wishing he could have brought a sailor home alive. That next year, the Air Force started looking for qualified chopper pilots.
4: It was about the middle of 67. Uh, we got an Aldis, which uh, is, uh, thing that comes out from the commandant says, okay, we're going to have an exchange program with the Air Force, uh, and we're going to select three pilot Coast Guard pilots to go exchange duty. Uh, and You have to be, you know, certain rank, uh, qualified and so forth, uh, and it'll be a year's tour in Vietnam, flying rescue with the Jolly Greens. Uh, so immediately I, I decided that I, I needed to do that, I wanted to do that. Um, about a week later, Jack walks up to me and he says, Lonnie says, I decided I was gonna volunteer too. So we both had volunteered then for that program.
1: On June 9th, 1968, Jack Rittacher took off with his crew to rescue a downed Marine pilot near the Laos border.
4: Jack's mission was on a Sunday morning. I had had the duty the night before and had been out. Uh, It's first light, I picked up two army pilots, Uh, got back to the base at Da Nang, probably around 7.30, 8 o'clock. Jack and Dick Gein, a guy who I had known when I was in high school, were walk, walking out and they actually got in the helicopter that I was in. They, what they call hot, refueled it. Um, I got out of the helicopter, me and my crew, Jack and his crew got in. I went into the paperwork, went back up to the hooch. About 30 minutes later, got a call from the duty officer saying Jack's plane just got shot down. He was killed.
1: Lieutenant Jack Reddicher was the first Coast Guardsman killed in the war and the only Coast Guard MIA until the airplane was relocated in 2003. His remains were brought home and buried at Arlington National Cemetery. But what of Nordmere's million dollar cargo the steel coils the German captain put his crew's life on the line for. The insurance was paid out and salvage bids were submitted. Malcolm Salvage had the low bid of $25 a ton to retrieve the plates and coils. Bob Massey was a qualified diver who was asked to help.
5: So they hired me for $100 a day. I started on in the middle of the winter, January 1, and finished July 1, got the last... Peace out,
1: July 1. In the winter of 1969, an oil slick was found coming from Nordmere, and the Department of the Interior's Federal Water Pollution Control Administration knew just who was crazy enough to clean it up. They came by and
5: said, hey, are you interested in taking the oil out of it? And I says, it's never been done before. They said, we know it. We can't find anybody to do, to do it. So I said, well, I'll give you a price, and if you like it, I'll try it.
1: Lake Huron's field operations chief was Bill Richardson.
6: What we ended up doing is we wanted to get at it from the top, so we, they hired a guy to dynamite the top of the, the tank off. Oh, wow. <laughs> You'll see that blast in the, in the movie, and uh, that was a little frightening. You know. <laughs> These guys are something else, though. I mean, Massey was this, this frogman from World War II. What a character, you know.
1: Massey was a retired Navy SEAL with 20 years of underwater demolition experience. They knew the thing had more than
5: 40,000 gallons on it, but yet we couldn't find it. So we finally decided to roll. Well, maybe we'll take the tops off. So we took the top off, the manhole off the top of the tank. And sure enough, there was oil. And it was deep. So they made a contract with me for 40,000 gallons. And I got 40,000 gallons in the first 24 hours. So I stopped. And they said, no, keep going, keep going. I said, no, we got a deal for 40,000 gallons of oil, and I got the 40,000, now what do you wanna do? Well, we want you to keep keep pumping. I said, well, how are we gonna solve this money situation? They said, we'll get some more, we'll get some more. So I said, well, I'll wait.
1: Massey had extensive explosives training during World War II in Korea, but his crew had a lot to learn.
5: We ordered up this one guy with explosives to take down and to blow this one compartment, put it in the bottom tank on, on inner tubes and take it up against the ceiling. So he finally says he's coming up on the radio. We see him go by the manhole that we're looking into. And guess what he's dragging? All the explosives had hooked onto his regulator. And of course they were not they were not in a fail-safe situation. So anyway, he came up and we took him off and sent him back down in his hand this time.
1: The race was on to get the oil out, and Lake Huron was slowly freezing over.
5: It was cold. I used two wetsuits, one that fit me and one that was larger. And I warmed them I didn't stay warm. I stayed cold, but however, I lived through it. I was after the money, covered
1: with oil. Nordmere's oil was stored in two of the eight ballast tanks aboard the Massey D. Bill Richardson wasn't a diver, but he still wanted to see what the operation looked like beneath the waves.
6: Well, I'd never put tanks on uh, before, but, uh, you know, I had a lot of confidence in these guys. And I said, let me, I want to go down and see where that tank is, or that opening, at least the manhole. I didn't want to get in. These guys are diving in into the fuel tank to place the hose, you know. And I didn't want to do that, so I, but I wanted to go down and see it. You know, I want to say I saw this in operation, and I could. You know, they, they're not pulling our leg or anything. You know, just you know, conscientious, conscientious federal employee. You know, and also stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so they showed me how to use the stuff, and I practiced around in the front of the bow of the ship. I could swim around. And, you know, you could. It was clear as day and underwater. And I'm a good swimmer to start with.
1: Bill was amused by the salvage crew who taught him how to throw knives competitively. Sometimes they bent the law when it suited them.
6: I I don't know where we were, but anyway, they told me how to get there in the middle of the woods. And I picked them up and we're driving back to Alpena and uh, in a government vehicle and government plates. I'm driving along and I hear this pow, pow, pow. (laughs) This guy's got the back window open with a revolver shooting a deer. (laughs) it was a wild bunch (laughs) but it was fun. I never had so much fun in my life on a a government job
1: Richardson flew from the newly renamed Jack Rittacher hangar at Air Station Detroit for his final inspection State Representative Joseph Swallow accompanied the team who were lowered to the wreck in a life basket that rescued the German crew
0: it was a great feeling of even though we were going down in the basket, it was a great feeling of triumph, that it, it, everything was being raised up by getting the oil off it. So, so it was a great day, and, uh, and otherwise it would have been quite a, quite a disaster out there, I think, uh, an environmental, environmental problem.
1: Nordmere would serve as a warning to other ships for decades, but even a four-story ship can't stop Mother Nature.
5: The waves came up on during the storms, and every wave put a layer of ice on it. Especially on where it was bare metal, because it jumped. It's, it, the bare metal attracted it, I guess, or something, whatever. And pretty soon you got thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of ice on it. And what happens? Parts of the ship ripped and dropped into into the lake.
1: Nordmere vanished beneath the waves around 2004 and so did much of its folklore. The Edward Townsend was deemed unseaworthy after its trip in November of 1966. It sank on its way to a scrapyard in Spain in the Deep Atlantic, October 7, 1968.
3: The waves which gathered them together now had parted sisters' fair. Townsend, two had her back broken, dragged down dead to get repaired. But she would see another morning she would see another dawn and ride the waves above her sister in the depths where she had gone sisters of the storm they're sailing sisters of the storm they were moving on proud ships of burden through the storms and lakes when clear
1: morrell's memory was kept alive thanks to its sole survivor who talked about his own mortality just 10 years before a fatal bout with cancer.
0: I'm not afraid of death, you know, I, I, there's no point in that, it's something that's, we're all gonna have to face at some point. Um, I just don't think it's it's my time yet. You know, I'll be 64 tomorrow, and I feel really good. And um, I just don't, I think I've got more to do. I'm not sure what, but I I just feel I have more to do. And as long as I have good health, I'll do it.
1: Dennis sued Bethlehem Steel within a week of being saved. His original claim was for $150,000. It took four years for the crew to see any settlement, nearly $3 million, in December of 1970. Every November, Dennis thought back to his ordeal on the raft.
0: I have to question it all, Uh, it's so bizarre. I mean, 38 hours out there, man, that's that's a long time. I count that down every year. I started at two o'clock in the morning on the 29th and uh, to the following evening, and that's a long time. You know, for a long time after the shipwreck, I was going to church five nights a week, any church. I mean, I was a church of the Nazarene, uh, Pentecostal, uh, Baptist, uh, Catholic, uh, anything. And I'd go to these churches, and they say, "Well, you know, God has a job for you. God has a job for you." And I guess I was hunting, and finally one day I said, well, I think if God has a, a job for me, uh, I'm not gonna find it, he's gonna give it to me. And maybe maybe my job is keeping the memory of the morale alive, and talking about it, giving people some kind of hope. And uh, I hope that's, that's it, because you know, in today's world, it's, it's rough.
1: Dennis Hale died at the age of 75 on September 2nd, 2015, but his story lives on, through two books he authored and several documentaries. Final Run and Deep Six are available through my web store at shipwreckpodcast.com. The interviews within this podcast are protected by copyright and may not be used without written permission. Let's close out this memory of November 1966 with a song Dennis co-wrote with singer Dan Hall. It's called Going Down.
3: It was a stormy night, November 66. 35-foot waves crashing down on the deck. Torn like paper was the Daniel J. Morrell. 29-man crew facing Huron's hell. Going down. Sound of the alarm, something wasn't right Jumped from my bunk with the light vest in my hand Sparks flying, grown men crying, miles from the land Going down, down Watched the Daniel J. Morrell split in half Gale force winds, icy mountain waves, twenty-eight men died, only one was saved, going down, down.